Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Old habits die hard, and that old saying seems to apply more than ever at this time of year. Whether it's leaving present buying till the last minute, overindulging on turkey and stuffing, or regressing into a teenage version of yourself in the presence of your family, many of us will end the year wishing we could do things differently and varying to change. We'd see the same in our consultations, whether they're about cutting down from harmful levels of alcohol consumption, stopping smoking or becoming more active. How can we help our patients make lasting changes and kill off those old habits for good? We'll be getting advice from two leading behaviour change experts, Sheru Izadi and Cindy Gray. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as usual, uh, I've got Navjoit here. Hi, Navjoit. Hi, Tom. Uh, I'm Navjoit Larder, head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And joining us from New Zealand, as usual again, it's Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Great. So we thought this time, didn't we? We, we were brainstorming what to do just before Christmas and we were thinking about you know, overindulgence, maybe uh, people drinking more at this time of year, or maybe drinking more this year, full stop. Uh, And, you know, I guess that comes up in our own lives, doesn't it? But also in those of our patients. So, um, yeah, is this uh, this one you're looking forward to, Navjoy? And what, what, what are you most hoping to get out from today? Yeah, it definitely feels very kind of Christmas appropriate and maybe very 2020 appropriate where we're all just kind of thinking about our habits and which ones of those we kind of like and want to continue and which one of those which ones of those we think might be less healthy and certainly in our patients as well. Um and I think the main thing I'm trying to I'm hoping to get out of the podcast today is to try and expand my I suppose the tools at my disposal really when it comes to conversations about uh, lifestyle change, behaviour change. I think I know one way how to do it, which is sort of say, this is bad for you because, and these are some of the things that might help. But I'd like to, (laughs) I don't think that's very um, helpful. And I'd like to, um, you know, do a bit better than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, What about you, Jenny? Yeah, I think that you know, we always are interested in understanding, you know, what is the evidence telling us about the best ways we can encourage people or coach them or walk with them through behavior change. Um, I'm particularly interested in this idea of self-care and at what point it becomes self-harm. You know, this year has been, you know, a year unlike any other. Um, I was scrolling through the 2020 photos of the year last night, and it's just, I mean, going from how it started to where we are in December, it's it's crazy to think about all the things that have happened in 2020. And undoubtedly, we've resorted to many strategies at home to care for ourselves emotionally and mentally and physically. And some of those things are kind of less good for our overall health than others. And, and yeah. so I'm interested in this idea that, you know, we're, we're trying to cope and get by Um, But what about those coping mechanisms could potentially be um, harmful for us or things that we want to kind of change going forward? So you mean the sort of um, 
oh, the news is grim. I'll have another drink, sort of self-care. Is that is that what you mean by the, so self when self-care becomes self-harm? That yeah, I think that's that's kind of the the chief example. Mm. I think that um, other examples are you know screen time. <laughs> that's something you know mm. I've really fallen into a trap with. Um, I I think that um, some of our eating habits, um, some of the ways in which we've gotten less exercise by virtue of not being mm. able to kind of live in a city and move around those places. Um, so yeah, again, I'm just interested in getting a better sense of, you know, when we're all just doing our best to get by with what we have, yeah. you know, at, like how can we kind of be taking care of ourselves in a way that doesn't end up hurting us in the future? Mm. Well, I've definitely noticed this year, uh, I think we're commuting less, so no longer commuting to the BMJ on, on those days of the week I'm doing that, but also doing more remote work in the, in the practice. Definitely got more sedentary. Um, and you know what I've done to, to respond to this, uh, and I'll share this with anyone listening. Uh, I'm on day three of, of being a Peloton bike owner. So, um, <laughs> so jealous. I am so jealous. How's it going, Tom? Uh, it's, it's good. Well, um, I was saying at home earlier, I was saying, you know, on Christmas Day, you're really excited. You've got your... your your gifts and then boxing day and day after you start to feel a bit um deflated i don't know if that's it but uh <laughs> i think it's just the consumer the shine, yeah, yeah exactly. the shine's worn off <laughs> the shine's worn off a little bit i might all my i couldn't sleep last night because my neck was hurting i, I wasn't expecting my <laughs> this to cause neck pain but um so i'm already quite worried that that this um, very expensive uh basically home exercise bike if anyone doesn't doesn't know what they are um, might be a complete waste of money and I'll stop doing it and I'll just be sitting there in my front room taunting me <laughs> for so the rest So you'll of my be days. listening very closely to this episode for tips for yourself exactly. on how That's to exactly. sustain I... your use of the Peloton bike. Exactly. It's complete self-interest oh, this yeah, episode. Perfect timing. <laughs> okay. So let's go into our interviews uh, straight away really because um, yeah we've got two really, really good interviews really explaining things from different angles I think about behaviour change. So uh, the first is a bit more theoretical, perhaps, or explaining a bit more of the basis for um, how people be- change their behaviours. Um, uh, and it's a Cindy Gray, who's a professor of uh, behavioural science. Uh, but I did start with asking her something which I always, um, I always feel I need to start with. As a GP, we often just think, oh, well, if I just tell the patient what they need to do, then they'll, they'll do it. So at least that's the old-fashioned view. And uh, so I asked her if that, there was still some merit in that approach. Gray and I'm interdisciplinary professor of health and behaviour at the Institute of Health and Wellbeing at the University of Glasgow. Hi, thanks for uh, talking to me today. Um, I want to start with just explaining perhaps my um, kind of rudimentary training on behaviour change in the consultations, which was probably um, quite old-fashioned now. But you know, it's really if, if a patient has a health problem that's lifestyle-related or whatever, you you, you would simply tell them. Um, what it is they need to do differently and um, and ex- expect most of the time the patient to, to do that and um, and come back and uh, <laughs> and tell you is that is that fair or have things moved on would you say well I think it's fair to say that a GPs 
can be in a, quite a privileged position when it comes to uh, their patients. So some early work that we did on people who were overweight um, or obese and asking them their experiences of consultation with GPs made it quite clear that they were much more likely to do something if their GP told them rather than um, a friend or a family member. So definitely there is a, is a position of privilege. However, um, this one size doesn't fit all. So what might work for one patient won't necessarily work for another patient. And it has to be said, although people might be very motivated and want to make changes um, to whatever behavior it happens to be, it's very, very difficult to do that. So without some additional support, it may be unlikely that if a doctor tells you to do something, that you're going to be able to make those changes and particularly maintain those changes in the long term. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us more about what what the kind of um, uh, conditions need to be met, I suppose, for, for somebody to, to, um, to change a behaviour? Let's say, you know, we're talking around Christmas, uh, alcohol, um, if you realise you've been drinking too much alcohol, but it's become very habitual. What's, um, what are the factors that need to, to, to be there to, to help that person to change that? Well, one of the behavioural theories that I personally find quite persuasive, and um, I've used to explain um, patient and GP encounters around um, thinking about how patients might do something differently is uh, a theory called self-determination theory, which um, looks at three important things um, as a condition for people to change their behaviours. And the first of these is competence. So the idea that um, people will do things if they feel confident that they can actually do things and they feel that they're good at, at doing things. The other thing is relatedness. So doing things that other people who are around you are doing or feeling support from other people in making changes um, that you want to make in your life. And then autonomy. And that's really, really important, particularly in the in the GP patient um, encounter where obviously the, the, the GP is the kind of dominant person in the room. The person who's going to change their behavior needs to feel they have choice. Um, So if people can choose what they want to do, so for example, how they lose weight or how they become physically active, they're much more likely to do that rather than their GP saying, well, go out and walk more um, if they Mm -hmm. really don't like um, to do walking. And just thinking it would be really useful to maybe go through that with an example. I'm I'm thinking of... um let's do something festive, like, like uh, drinking too much over the festive period and wanting to to cut that down. What, what um, Can you talk through what that would look like? Or, or is it is it possible to, to do that? Or is this, is this, does this take too much time to, you know, even within our conversation, to really cover, let alone a consultation? So if I were a GP and mm-hmm. I starting with a patient who um, I felt was perhaps drinking a little bit too much, I think the first thing to do would be to understand the patient's own views on their drinking and whether they agreed that actually uh, they were drinking too much um, and and could be doing uh, with cutting down. 
And I think then what I would do in terms of um, trying to increase the internal motivation um, for the patient um, to, to want to cut down is not to say simply, well, it's, it's bad for your health to drink more to drink as much as you are, or, or it would be good for your health to cut down. Absolutely, you should say that. But then you would go on to think about, well, what would be the benefits for you as a person of, 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 of cutting down your, your, your alcohol consumption? What would it mean for how you felt um, you know, in the morning, getting up, more energy? Um, it be for the relationships that you have with um, your family, your friends, etc., etc. And then the other thing to think about is, well, when is alcohol really important um, to you? You know, when when are the drinks that actually are valuable and are positive for you, and actually you really really enjoy? Because obviously, a lot of us do enjoy the odd drink. And so to say to many people, well, cut out alcohol completely wouldn't really work. But it's thinking about, well, which are the drinks then that you are not necessary and you could easily cut? And the other thing is as well in terms of, you know, being, at, being out with friends, although obviously that doesn't, doesn't happen at the moment. But do you have to have that, that extra drink or could you actually have um, one drink that's alcoholic and another drink that is is, is alcoholic and it's trying to think about well can you drink in moderation and when can you cut out drinks yeah, yeah. and one other thing i'd like i'd love to ask you about because um i, I, I felt there's so many times with so many things i've tried to change is is that you, know, you do it for a week i mean new year's resolutions is the classic thing isn't it i'm sure there's lots of um evidence on how poor we all are at keeping up our new year's resolutions is that is there a way of um stopping that you know after a week you stop exercising or you give up on, on whatever it was that you decided to do any any kind of tips on that for from the evidence or otherwise yeah well i think this goes back to self-determination theory i think this is where the theory is is very very um powerful it is thinking about those internalized motivations um for doing things so doing things because they really are of value um to you to do them and thinking about how much better doing them makes you feel and really really focusing on that and identifying that before you start and as you go on so each day that you do your behavior thinking about yeah I'm really really feeling um, better for that trying to get support um, from people around you letting people know what you're doing and um, hopefully people that will say, well, you're doing a really good job. That's absolutely fantastic and giving you um, mm -hmm. support for doing it. And also um, building your skills in doing something. So feeling that you are good at trying to make the changes that you, you make. And also importantly, not being too fixated on something. So um, having the choice of, of, of doing what you want to do. And that choice is, you know, you as well. So if you start to do something and you find it's not really working, well, choose to do something else that you enjoy uh, more instead. And I think the final thing is um, to, you know, look at, look at the long term and don't look at the day to day. So if you have a day which doesn't go so well and you have a bit of a setback or a relapse, Think about why you had that setback and relapse and think forward to that long-term goal and think, well, you know, that's, that's today, put that aside, but tomorrow or the next day or whenever it is, 
I'm going to start doing that again. And here are the reasons why I'm going to start doing it again, because I feel so much better. I'm really enjoying doing it and I want to make it part of my life. So I, I found that very helpful, uh, particularly, I suppose, I don't just want to talk about me and my exercise bike for the whole episode, but um, I did find that useful after today's uh, spin class, thinking, um, <laughs> feeling very down as I was uh, afterwards, has been shouted at for 20 minutes by by a cheesy American, no offence, uh, Jenny. <laughs> uh, but going back to my original motivation for, for wanting to, to get fit and uh, etc. So... That was very useful. Thank you, Cindy. I think that's such a good overview. And it brings us back to what I think is at the center of most behavior change strategies, whether you're thinking about motivational interviewing or, um, you know, other types of approaches to working with patients. And something that's always been very um, real for me is the sense of internal motivation. So my my dad was a smoker for more than 50 years. Um, and from high school, my sister and I would try bombarding him with information. And we all know by now that presenting information on harms or potential benefits is not sufficient. Um, and so needless to say, that didn't help. And we would make argument after argument. Um, and it wasn't until he finally found some reason um, for himself to want to stop um, that he finally quit after more than 50 years smoking. So um, that was one good thing to come out of um this kind of year. But I think the other thing I wanted to say is this piece about autonomy. And this is where I, I'm reminded of some of our prior interviews and conversations, specifically around um, sleep and the social determinants of sleep. And if you don't have the ability to make choices about your life, about how you move in the world, about which spaces you can safely um, inhabit or occupy or move through, it's very difficult to enact any of this change. Um, and so I'm thinking about, you know, unsafe physical environments. I'm thinking about um, coronavirus-related restrictions. I'm thinking about, you know, a bunch of different reasons why it might actually just not be feasible to make those changes um, mm -hmm. now or at any point, um, despite what might be very high levels of internal motivation. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? Uh, autonomy isn't isn't just something within the consultation. It's, it's probably a, a bigger impact else, elsewhere, isn't it? And I think it's yeah, something we right. see kind of time and again with our patients where they'll say that, you know, I wish I could do this. This would mm. be great. But, and you know, they're, they're very, um, you know, circumstances out of people's control. They do mm. exist. Um, mm. Did you, did you like that self-determination theory? I quite like these, these theories. Um, I, think, I think that's maybe the way my brain works a bit, but I think it's useful to, if you can re recall it during the consultation, those three things, you know, the confidence that you can do it, the relatedness or support with, with, with the change, as well as um, the autonomy and, I suppose, sense of choice that you, you, you've got a choice over this. It's not someone telling you you have to do it. I'm curious how much both of you, when you're talking with patients about whatever change they want to make, like when you're in a consultation with them, what do you end up talking about? Do you try to break down like where they have autonomy or is it? 
does it tend to be more about exploring the motivation for something? I have to say, in the midst of a conversation, I um, I find it hard actually to apply these frameworks and remember these frameworks. And I think I talk about kind of organically what might come up in the consultation, so what the patient might bring up or what I sort of perceive as being important. And I think having a kind of coherent, you know, that three-step kind of approach, Tom, that you just mentioned, I think is very helpful. I think often... I tend to focus less on the internal motivation, I think, and more on, well, what are the behaviours or habits that might help you achieve what you want to do? Like, how can we, let's talk it out and think about what's practical. And actually, I think you do need that step back, don't you, to kind of, um, Mm. to work out the the kind of motivation. Mm. I'm probably too guilty of doing what I think Stephanie Giorgio warned us against, uh, which is using your own experience as which is a useful thing to, to use because, you know, it's it's more real and, and probably more powerful. But uh, I think you could overvalue the thing that you found helpful and, and you know, that might just be the completely wrong thing for that pe- person. Um, after you, I, I wonder if this is, is the right time to come to our second interview, actually, because um, I think the person you spoke to, this is sort of her her job, isn't it? Yeah, she, it's she... her bread and butter. Yeah, so yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, it leads quite naturally on to um, this conversation that I had with uh, Sharu Izadi, who is a behaviour change um, expert who started out um, with a psychology background working in uh, substance misuse and addictions and has now... Um, you know, she talks about how she sort of realised from that that there are different strategies that you can kind of weave together and she's come up with, you know, her own approach that she's written about in a book called The Kindness Method, um, which focuses on compassion. Um, And I had a really interesting conversation with um, Sheru about all sorts of things. And I think the snippet you're going to hear now, um, we started out by talking about um, the approaches that GPs can use in what is often quite a time-pressured consultation. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And let's go back to that interview that Navjoy did with Sharu Izadi. I'm a behavioural change specialist, so I tend to help people to change 
change their habits. And my experience came from working in substance misuse treatment. Um, I started as an assistant psychologist in Northwest London for an NHS trust. And I learned there that so many of the tools being used um, in frontline addiction treatment could be useful to the general population and indeed useful to all sorts of other multidisciplinary teams. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you do with, say, an individual patient. So say if, um, I don't know, I was coming to see you and I was worried about my an- alcohol in- intake, uh, kind of what, what would be the, the steps you would go through with me, for example? I think first and foremost, I would assume that you already know the downsides. Right. I completely appreciate that there is, um, you know, there's you have a duty to inform people and not assume a certain level of Yeah, But I equally feel like people often feel patronized because if you're already concerned about your alcohol consumption, etc., you've probably you're probably very aware of the negatives as it is. I think one shift that needs to take place is an understanding of the fact that very often what is now a problematic habit was at one point a solution to something. And to reframe it that way as a coping strategy that could otherwise be uh, diversified. The other thing I find helpful is hypothetical change is a very quick way of helping people to zoom out of the isolated habit and to see it in the context of the rest of their lives and the impact it has on the rest of their lives when they make those changes. So it isn't this remedial punitive, you've been bad, cut out the booze. It's look at the other impacts it would have on your relationships, on your capacity at work, on your quality of life. So again, rather than this sort of deficit-based Um, very aligned with our risk averse training which is where is it bad where are you bad yeah (laughs) Yeah. how can we fix you as quickly it's also punitive yeah yeah which it has to be and I completely get and I totally support that because I've worked in a clinical environment um that said I think there is space to kind of remember also that this is someone's first point of contact and sometimes the first conversation that they're having about this and I know as an assessor and a person who was the first point of contact that if someone say for example is coming in to talk about a stigmatized or illegal behavior right and then you're expecting an honest assessment out of this person it's an ambitious thing and a lot of frontline key workers for example will tell you that it isn't until the third or fourth or fifth session with a client that they've actually got the honesty out of them look at look at smoking i can't tell you how many people have told me that they've lied to the gp and then despite the fact that they've reduced their cigarette intake, they forgot the initial lie. <laughs> so it looks like it's gone up. They've, they've just, they haven't moved at all. <laughs> yeah. It's that thing where everyone thinks that they're the worst. Everyone thinks that, you, you probably know this, you know, regardless of everyone thinks they're doing it the worst way and their secrets are the most shameful. And I think that we need to kind of remember as practitioners that we need, that we are unshockable and to remind them that they're not about to freak us out (laughs) and it's in their best interest to tell the truth and we are at their service to some extent um and so that shame and uh guilt etc i don't think really has a place there and unfortunately our systems are set up to assess risk and so it's difficult not to say things like how many units and did you know that this could do this to your body etc and so where possible i try to as i say that reframe it as a part of their life where they've where they've needed an extra friend and now they've become a bit too dependent on that friend I think it's just those sort of it's a move away from that patient doctor dynamic because of the amount of information which is now available to people 
right. very easily. How how does that differ if it's someone who say hasn't come to you for help with a particular behaviour change? So something that you know we might see in primary care is um, you know someone who's had a blood test result that suggests prediabetes, and you want to have a conversation with them about maybe losing a bit of weight or you know, their, their blood pressure has been a bit high and you want to have a conversation about lifestyle changes that might help with that. Do you do you think that kind of changes things a bit? I think that's a really, really good question because I often tell people, you know, you can't force other people to change. You can give them the information that they require and you can remind them that you're there for when that's the case. That said, working in services, I do think that sometimes we take for granted how much access and information people actually have on that stuff just because the leaflets are out there (laughs) and just because the 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 posters have been photocopied doesn't necessarily mean that (laughs) someone has yet come in to actually say these are the options this is what's in the community etc etc so i think again um it's 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 the lack of judgment i also think that presenting people with what is clearly a suite of options can be incredibly empowering as opposed to saying here's a free gym pass right demonstrating to them that you are not focusing in on one thing that they're perhaps already quite sensitive about but that rather your concern is for their overall well-being it just so happens that the, that the byproduct is um it happens to be remedial when it comes to a particular health problem right but i don't think that you should focus in on and and assume necessarily that people know that there is a suite of options available and I think very often it's the way that that's presented to people yeah yeah more empowering and just uh, more positive that that seems um and then one of the things we were just talking about before we started recording was um you were going to tell me about some of the gaps that you see between kind of say the the person who's come through to primary care to see you do you do you perceive like are those quite common that perhaps in the the 10 minutes that someone might have with their GP, I guess your relationship or someone in your role would be quite different. Yeah, I think the main one is to use more of that time assuming that people already know how they want to change and helping them to establish why they haven't managed to. Yeah. I think just assuming that people are a little bit more intelligent in that sense. And I get that you can't always do that. But I think that if someone, you know, when I was very overweight, the only place I really cried about it was at the GP. Because mm. you're getting weighed and then you get a lecture. Even now I feel upset thinking about it, you know, and you sit there and it's all a bit clinical and you're on a chair. And I know it can't be avoided. I know it, I know it is unavoidable. But sometimes it took the sting out of it when they, when when they didn't say, well, you know, it's just energy in and energy out and you just got to move your body more. And I was like, trust me, no one knows more about how to lose weight than me. It's my obsession all day. It's making me miserable. And this is 10 minutes of your day. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I'm a professional at losing weight. Yeah. I need to understand why I can't. Yeah. So maybe f- less, I know this is ambitious, but in my utopian world, I wouldn't have got so many free coupons to Weight Watchers or whatever. I would have got six counselling sessions. 
it would have been more to do with mental health than it would have been done to physical practicality. Physical practicality, I can Google now. I could go see Joe Wicks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever I need. That's absolutely fine. We've never had more options. Yeah. I always knew what to do better than anyone. A person who's overweight and doesn't want to be, I assure you, knows more about the diets out there than your average GP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that rings very true. And do you think that's true? Because often I think there's this maybe somewhat paternalistic and maybe somewhat patronising attitude that there is literacy or socioeconomic disparity and there's a privilege in, you know, having that knowledge and actually maybe GPs do need to be having that more kind of... um, you know, it's energy in and energy out. I mean, I, I'm not sure that's helpful for anybody, but like, how how do you kind of um, broach that sort of topic of, um, yeah, just the varying backgrounds that I suppose people will have? Yeah, I think I, I don't envy you in that sense. And even as I'm saying these things, I can hear frontline workers that I've worked with before and GPs thinking, oh, that sounds lovely. You know, I'd love to have the time to do things like that with my clients. I wish that I could sit that, you know, that's what I got into this my patients that's why I got into this in the first place and now I have to tick all these boxes and everything becomes a matter of priority and urgency and you know I completely get that um I think one question that can be useful across the board is what changes would you like to make I often ask people if I could wave a magic wand and you were behaving differently tomorrow and you didn't have to do any of the hard stuff what changes would you make And a lot of the time that will give you an enormous amount of insight. And although it seems counterproductive when it comes to saving time, it's actually come out of that person's mouth. (laughs) You can learn a lot from the answer. And the open question thing is such a cliche, but it, and you know, you really feel like you're wasting time. And I, I have to say, I would be, it would be remiss of me not to say how many times this has backfired when you're sat there half an hour later and you can't stop someone talking and you've got a million people waiting, you know, like I get it. We're not, you're not therapists. Um, But I do think that every now and then, if you get good at it, (laughs) the value of giving someone just a minute or so and being able to um, contain that and make them very aware of the amount of time that they have with you, but that within that time, you're going to be totally present and listen to their response. And their response is going to have some impact on your response. (laughs) I think that it sounds so silly, but it isn't the case that you're just asking a question and then going back to what you were going to do anyway. And even if you are, perhaps it's manipulative of me to say this, but to make it look like you're not, if you've got the energy. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. actually listening. <laughs> actually listening. And I get yeah, it because you're incredibly busy. And I remember when I was working in, I think I was working for Turning Point at the time. And we'd have these people come in and give training and they would say the sort of stuff that I'm saying now, like really listen to people. And I'd be like, <laughs> the last guy who came into my office, but I've come into this as a caring person who wants to help people. So it becomes such a conflict internally, what I'm turning you away because you haven't described this quickly enough, you know? So I think it's about everyone finding their own sort of false economy in it. I found that my false economy was finishing people's sentences, assuming what they were going to say, patronizing them, thinking I could speed up the process so that I could do the forms for them and do everything for them. And I was doing them a massive disservice. Yeah. Um, and so in a year's time, they might still be coming in. So I guess it's about having faith in front loading that effort so that people can go. Yeah. Just, yeah. Believing that that will pay off in time. Yeah. Which I honestly believe it does. It's just how, how long that takes is depending on how much capacity you've got to wait. Yeah. Uh, and then what have you, um, 
like this year this has been a strange year for many people it's been uh yeah you know i don't need to talk to you about what this year has been like i'm familiar Um, with its work yeah, yeah yeah you might have heard there's a pandemic um but i think you know one thing that uh, we've been discussing the host of this podcast. One thing I've been talking to patients about is just this sense that, oh, you know, I've been needing to, you know, I've been eating more comfort food or I've been having, um, you know, I've been having half a bottle of wine or whatever it is every night and I've really needed that. I mean, uh, and my approach, I mean, rightly or wrongly, has just, you know, it's quite understanding. Like I can understand why people need those kind of, need something to help them cope with what's going on. But it often doesn't feel like kind of, health wise the right thing to do but so I just wanted to get your views on that like how would you approach that situation I completely agree with you I think that we need to unless we're talking about serious health problems and risks if we take that out of the equation and we talk about the everyday person who is using sugar as a crutch for example or alcohol Mm -hmm. as a crutch and it's having a negative impact on their lives What I would say is in the first instance, rather than taking away this thing that gives you comfort, write down what it does for you and then ask yourself what else can do that for you. Mm. Push in those other tools in your coping, in your belt. I, for example, I like a glass of red wine. I've established that a glass of red wine tends to do the same for me as half a bath. (laughs) You know, if you look at it that way, half a bath, 15 minutes sing, chat with someone fun, um, you know, because it's making me feel calm. It's punctuating the end of a day. It's a ritual. It's, you know, these are the comforts that it's giving me. So breaking them down into the uh, the valued components and then diversifying your go-tos. What can leave people really disillusioned is being told, right, the, the tools in your toolkit that are um, that are not good for your health are alcohol and sugar, for example. So you should take them away and instead, when you want alcohol, you should meditate. Sorry, I'm laughing immediately because I know how I would feel if someone said that to yeah. me. I'd be like, sorry, have you tried meditating for the first time recently? Tell me that doesn't have the same effect as having a glass of wine. First of all, you need to manage your expectations with that stuff and realise that the toolkit needs to be filled with things that you can get better at. And you don't get better at yeah. drinking. So I think that's the other thing. That's time, that that tends to be my sort of thing. Is this something I could get better at? Is this something that I'll be glad I did tomorrow? Is this something that I would recommend a loved one did? Because people often ask me, oh, you you know, what if the kind decision for me is just eating donuts and wine all night? That feels pretty kind at the time. And I always go back to saying, there's no need to overcomplicate it. We all pride ourselves on giving good advice to our loved ones. What advice would you give your loved one right now? Jenny, did that um, address your question about the line between self-care and self-harm? That was such a good interview. <laughs> that was such a joy to listen to. It sounded like you had such a nice rapport with her as well, never right? Yeah, I mean, I felt like I was uh, doing what you did, Tom, and asking a lot of questions that were coming from my own perspective. <laughs> of like, yeah, what would you say to someone, a theoretical <laughs> someone, who's perhaps drinking too much or eating too many donuts? <laughs> <laughs> not me <laughs> no but she was great she was really uh wonderful to talk to and I think conveyed things uh, to me in a way that that really made sense I think um and that 
I feel will be quite useful strategies um, to use with patients mm. and, and myself. <laughs> yeah, like what else can do that for you? I've wrote that one down. Uh, yeah, and going back to the, the to- yeah, tell me tell me about, I feel like this is coming from another episode too. Is it maybe, maybe the Judd Brewer one? It's like, talk me through like why, why it is you, you have the donut or have have a glass of wine. What yeah. is it? What's the feeling you get, and uh, what yeah. else can do that for you? That's yeah, really nice. I think yeah, that sort of framing of thinking it as a, 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 a as a friend. What was once a friend to you, but now maybe is less of a desirable friend. A bully. Yeah, 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 and absolutely, and um, also this idea, almost like a harm reduction strategy. Like, what other things in your toolkit can do this for you that might not have the same negative consequences. I love that idea of just like, okay, um, so if you recognize that what whatever your coping strategy is might not have, you know, all the benefits for you in the world, what else can give you those benefits? I think that's really great. I mean, at the end of the day, none of these can address, you know, I don't know, someone's kind of actual ability to implement the change you know like when we're feeling down or when we're feeling bad it's really really hard to try something new it's really really hard to actually do the thing that you agree with someone whether that's a gp or a friend or a family member that like could also make you feel good you know it's just i just making change is hard i think making change in 2020 is especially hard as well i think the and you know, I think it, there, there's all the internal things that maybe, you know, are important. But as we were saying, there's a huge amount of external stuff that um, that influences um, our behaviours. And even with the best strategies, I think that can be, still be very difficult to contend with. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of something, but maybe another angle on this, perhaps, which is uh, I heard Margaret McCartney being interviewed on the radio today about vaccines. And um, we asked her, you know, what are your patients telling you about the vaccine? And and her answer was, you know, I, I'm doing all this on the phone with them. And so I'm, I'm, I don't really know as, as much as I used to. And, you know, we're not having those little conversations that went mm. as they're leaving the room mm. or you know, as they walk in. Um, it's all this sort of transactional con- con- consultations we're having at the moment. Um, I don't mean to undermine the whole episode, but I'm not sure how many of these kind of consultations we're really going to be having because I think people maybe aren't, we're not going to get to, to this being actually the roots of what the person really wants to talk about, or maybe people won't feel so much that they can talk to us about these things at the moment. Um, but I hope they do, but that's that's another concern I've got. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Um, and maybe, maybe not to make this sort of so self-obsessed and not so patient-focused, but maybe we could be the intended audience for this for now. But, and then mm. when, you know, but I think you're right, Tom, that um, it, it is very, it's hard enough to do, I think, in a in a face-to-face consultation and to feel that you're, you know, getting to that sort of nitty-gritty um, good stuff. But over the yeah. phone, I think really hard. But then I suppose you wonder... You know, am I just having a too great a sense of my own importance and influence? And and you know, is this what is the GP's role here? Perhaps, um, yeah. You know, do we really need to be part of this at all? What do you think? 
Well, that's like the question you asked in your interview with Sharu Navjoy, right? You said, well, what if it's not someone asking me for help, but what if it's something that comes up over the course of the consultation? And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, just we are maintaining relationships that we have with people for new people we haven't met before. You know, we're supposed to be getting a picture of kind of their health and past medical history and their health behaviors are part of that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the key question, isn't it? And I was struck by something else Sheru said, which was about um, her own experience of losing weight and how at the GP, the GP surgery was one of the kind of worse kind of experiences for her um, as part of that. And I think she said that she would have preferred to have um, like counselling sessions rather than those kind of um, being lectured or being offered vouchers for Weight Watchers. And so I think there is... There will be opportunities, I think, for GPs to connect people to, you know, where they might need to be for, for some services. But I, too, wonder, particularly the time aspect, I think, of what actually can a GP usefully achieve in 10 minutes to kind of, you know, uncover all, all of the things that we've been talking about and to, to let the patient really feel heard and listened to. And maybe one thing, um, maybe to, to end things on a positive uh no, or something tangible at least, at least for, for GPs in England, uh, for our primary care network funding uh, for these um, additional roles, we, we can actually spend some of that on health coaches uh, as well as social prescribers, as many of us are already doing. So, um, yeah, I guess this episode makes me think a bit more positive, positively that, mm-hmm. that that could be a really good option, um, Yeah, particularly as we, in our PCN, at least, we haven't been able to spend all the money this year. So... I'll, I'll, I'll suggest that to the director. But that was the other point in uh, what Sharu said, which I thought was so great, is kind of the importance of demonstrating a concern on someone's overall well-being, you know? And I think that's part of it, right? It's not, we're not in this to shame people or to say, you know, slap their wrist. We're not, you know, you're not doing something right or good. It's because, you know, we care about people and and that's, you know, the whole reason why we're in this and asking about these things, because we don't want them to be doing harmful things or things that aren't serving them. It's because we actually care about their overall well-being. And I thought, you know, f- finding ways to go back to that and grounding our consultations in that, um, for me, was something really meaningful. Mm. And if anyone wants to to read more on that, actually, with the, the the BMJ recently, we had an article about the power of caring in in clinical encounters, uh, which uh, which really nice a summary of of exactly this. You know how how just simply a caring approach um, can make a difference to to consultations. Um, I've got a couple of the the tips here actually, which I can um, end on. Uh, so one is that they recommend practicing mindfulness to center yourself and be fully present in the consultation. Um, explain clearly, be positive, avoid negative words and phrases, uh, be prepared to be vulnerable and human, and find things to like about your patient. And one I really like is uh, find out what the patient would like their good health back for. That is a good one.
And I guess these are the, many of the themes of our podcast, really, over the, the whole year, nearly a year now we've been doing this. Uh, and yeah, we keep coming back to some of these themes. And for, for those of you who haven't heard them yet, you can go to the Deep Breath In channel on wherever you get your podcast from and uh, take a look through our back catalogue there and listen to some of those. So I think that's probably a good place to wrap things up for today. We'll be back next time with a bit of a Christmas special and I think probably something on vaccinations, but most likely in the new year. Uh, thank you to our guests today, which were Sharu and Cindy. Uh, thanks to Navjoy. See you next time. Thank you. See you next time. And see you next time, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. Uh, so until next time, goodbye. <laughs>